Good evening, and open your Bibles, if you would, to the 78th Psalm, Psalm 78. The 78th Psalm. <clears throat> this uh, Psalm has 72 verses. Somebody said, well, he's already a long preacher. If he preaches the whole Psalm, this could be sad, huh? So I'm going to do the whole psalm. Only we're going to do it from a big picture, a big picture standpoint. I'm not going to go verse by verse by verse. And um, we're going to look at the big scene. In this, um, in this psalm, there, there is this movement throughout the psalm. There is a reminder of the blessings and the favor, the kindness, the goodness of God to his people and their sad response. And the goodness of God and their sad response. Goodness of God, their sad response. Everybody get the picture? That's, that's the movement if you read the whole psalm, which I would encourage you to do and we will not do tonight. But I want us to begin reading in verse number 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses, and I'm going to say very little about them, except they kind of give us the idea of what this psalm is about, and that movement that I was just talking about. And then we're going to see the glaring sin, or the glaring problem with Israel uh, before God, and why God is dealing with them, or chiding them, calling them to repent over and over and over through the prophets, and, uh, and throughout the, uh, all the way to their captivity. So let's look in the 78th Psalm, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength. Watch this, the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God, and refused to walk in His law, and forget His works and His wonders that he had showed them. Now, I'm going to stop the reading right there, but even with that short reading, 11 out of 72 verses, you could already see the movement, calling attention to the goodness and the kindness and the favor of God and the sad response to that goodness of God. Well, that goes on through, and we're going to look at the big picture here and identify uh, what I believe is the heart and soul, the theme, or the purpose that this psalm exists 
in the passage or in the Bible. Again, we say thank you, Lord. Bless our time together. Thank you for the attention called by the pastor. I would, God, it were all over the land to pray for our land, pray for our nation, pray for the results of the election coming up and all that's going on. Now, we pray that you would help us here this moment. We need thee. We need the help and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would give us understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to go ahead and be seated, and I failed to ask you to turn also, and I just want you to turn there and hold it, but also go to 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. I'm not going to tell you the verse. We'll get there in a little bit. And if you just hold that there, then we can all turn together when it's time and do that very quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And just hold your finger, mark it with the ribbon of your Bible or the $100 bill or that you have in your pocket or whatever the case. All right. <clears throat> Now, I better get a drink here. I had to get a drink because I'm going to sing. You don't know what you're saying. But anyway, I'm sure I've told you the blind piano player we had that said when he heard me sing, he was deaf as well as blind. So that might tell you something about my singing, but nonetheless. Last night at the invitation time, Brother Vaughn played, I have decided to follow Jesus. And um, I've noticed that in meetings that I've preached here of, of late. I think I could go back maybe five meetings where at least one night of the meeting that uh, th that song was used. I have decided to follow Jesus. You know that song, I'm sure. And some of us have been singing that song for a long, long time. And I've kind of written my own verse for the purpose of emphasizing emphasis in this sermon and in this passage. So bear with me as I try to sing. I'm not going to sing the whole song, all the choruses. No, I'm going to spare you that. Just this one part. And you know how it goes. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided. I started too high. To follow Jesus, I have decided. Oh, no, let's see. But if he won't do what I want him to, I will turn back. I will turn back. What do you think? You think that will catch on and our churches and people will be singing this chorus here? Well, no. It won't be sung in church, and there might be people that are sitting right here, I should hope, that would say, I would never sing that. I wouldn't sing it like that. I'm sure most people in most churches would say the same thing. Well, there's no way I would sing that. There are some that wouldn't sing it that practice it. Because they have made or profess to have made some devotion or some commitment to follow Jesus Christ. But when he didn't do, or we could say it in several different ways, when things didn't go, or when someone disappointed them along the way, they did turn back. They did turn back. And so don't look at me like I'm being ugly and judgmental. That's what's in our passage. I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm not trying to be judgmental. 
the Lord in heaven knows my own journey. Being saved at the age of six and uh, called to preach at the age of 16 and having my ups and downs through my teen years, pulling my own little Jonah stunt and trying to run from the call of God like I could get away from that and get away from his conviction and his presence. Oh, yeah, I've had my own experience. Like almost anybody that's been saved any length of time could say. Now, again, the words of this song. But if he won't do what I want him to, I will turn back. It's repulsive when we think about actually trying to sing that in a service. Yet it it happens in the lives of way too many of God's people way too many times. Somebody say amen. And that's what the psalmist is dealing with by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he addresses the nation, the situation of the nation. Now, we're, going to talk, we're not going to talk about it on the national level. I'm not trying to make this a patriotic sermon. Oh, I love to preach that kind of stuff. I'd like to preach about the times and a lot of things I'd like to preach about. But that's not what I feel like God would have us to do when we talk about personal revival. It's got to start in us, and, and it's got to be real in our own hearts personally before it can affect the church, before the ch- church can affect the community and the world like we are supposed to. We need revived. We need renewed. We need refreshed. And I'm, I'm of the persuasion for this new mindset that says, oh, the revivals are something of the past. That's what they used to do. The Lord in heaven knows they were needed then and they are needed now. That's what the psalmist is concerned about. That God has been kind, good, gracious, generous, patient, benevolent, all of that, and more with his people. But whether God is good to his people or not is not the issue. It's their response to the goodness of God that is the issue. If you went through the psalm, I'm not going to go into detail about it, but if you went through the psalm, you would see the reminders in this psalm of things that those of you that are mindful of the liberation that God gave Egypt, uh, Israel from the bondage in Egypt, and then through that wilderness journey, and then eventually into their land, and, and all the way up to giving them a king like David, you would see that all of those things are and blessings are addressed in, in this psalm. They are reminded that God delivered them from Egypt. In my Bible reading this morning, I was at the Red Sea when Moses said to the people of Israel, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. My, what a story that is. As they moved forward and went through the Red Sea. And then God delivered them, destroying the armies of the Egyptians. And then he gave them water and food in the wilderness. They were three days in till they said, we have no water. And they are kicking the dirt angry about the fact they don't have water. Well, then they came on water, but it was bitter water. And now they're angry about that. (laughs) And what did God do? Well, Moses called on God. God said, cut down that tree. Moses cut down the tree, put it in the water. Boy, there's a, lot, there's a lot of symbolism here. There's a lot of prediction here about the future. But he cut down that tree, and bitter water was made sweet as a result of that, and they all drank. And then he gave them water out of the rock. 
He slew their enemies. I read that this morning, how the Amalekites come up behind them, and they were going to try to destroy them. And God took care of their enemies. He, he did. He, he, he took care of them. Somebody said, well, I read that where Moses' arms were held up and the people fought and they won. Well, where did that victory come from? You know where it came from. The Bible tells you where it came from. God took care of them. He forgave their sins. As Moses, who was a beautiful picture of Christ. You know, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18 says that Moses said that the day is going to come when God will give you a prophet like unto me. And when you go to the New Testament and the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus said, that's me. The one that Moses, of whom Moses prophesied, that's me. And you know, Moses was in many ways a picture of Christ, but never more was he a type of Christ than when he stood between a guilty people that were worthy of the judgment of God and a righteous God and prayed on their behalf. There was more than one occasion when in that wilderness journey, God said to Moses, why don't you step over here? I'll put them over here. I'll toast them, not a direct quote there, but I'll toast them and I'll start over with you. And what did Moses do? Interceded on their behalf time and again, time and again. Moses stood before them, uh, stood before God and interceded for this guilty and sinful people. Led them into the land had mercy on them even in the times of the judges. I don't know if you've read that book lately, but my soul, by the time you get done, it can almost be depressing. I remember preaching through judges for many, many weeks. I don't know if you've done that or not, Pastor, but I remember by the time I got about three-fourths of the way through, I felt like I needed a bath. I mean, just uh, it's hard to even think that you're reading about the people of God. Uh, their behavior was so weird and so bizarre, so evil and so wicked. And yet God kept raising up judges and and, and kept guiding them until he gave them the, the ability to enter in and, and, and defeat their enemies. And they wanted a king. They said, give us a king so that we might be like all the other nations. And they got Saul, a man after their own heart. What a mess that was. Forty years of Saul. Everything I'm, every time I think about 40 years of King Saul, I'm thankful for term limits here in the United States. Can you imagine some of the presidents that we've had if we had 40 years of them? Somebody help me here. So I'm just saying, but they had 40 years of King Saul and their nation was in great distress. But they got what they wanted. They got just what they deserved. But now God said, I'm going to remove you because you still had a purpose upon those people. And I'm going to give you a king after my own heart. And while we know that through the process of time, David had his issues, yet he was a man that stayed humble before God and was used mightily by God to restore Israel and to have it be such a prominent nation in the world so that when Solomon became the king, he led them to become the most prominent nation in the world. The whole world was coming to Jerusalem to see about this glory and about the prosperity, and about the joy that was among them. Remember when the queen of Sheba came? She marveled, said, uh, your, your servants are happy, your people are happy, uh, there's joy here. Well, sure, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's joy. And they had joy in their land. God blessed them, and he gave them. But whether God was good or not is not the issue. It's how they responded. And we're not here tonight 
so that we can uh, be reminded of the failures of Israel in the wilderness, in the times of the judges, demanding a king like Saul. Uh, we're not here so we can beat up on uh, the people of the past and their failures. We're actually here so we can look into the Word of God and it can confront us. Those that are gone before us about uh, whom this uh, psalm is written, their record was settled a long time ago. But yours isn't. Mine isn't. What we do is not look to beat upon the people of the past, but we assemble together so that God may confront us about us. See, that's not a pot. I didn't expect a ton of amen. Amen. Glory to God. That's not a popular concept, but it's a very biblical concept. It's exactly what we do. So how did they respond? Well, without reading the whole song, let me show you. I'll, I'll show you two movements here. Uh, and the first one would be, if you look down in verse number 7. Verse number 7. Uh, not verse 7. Verse 17, I'm sorry. Verse 17. Here's their response to the goodness of God. And they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. And we can talk about particulars, but get the idea. Their response to the goodness of God was they sinned yet more against him, provoking the Most High in the wilderness. Verse 22, because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. Verse 32, for all this they sinned still and believed not for his wondrous works. You know, every one of these verses that I'm reading, it follows how God took care of them and blessed them and showed his kindness and favor. And here is their response. They sinned yet more. Verse 22, they believed not God and did not trust his salvation. And verse 32, for all this they sinned still and believed not for his wondrous works. So he kept doing the works and they kept not believing. Verse 37, for their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast, in his covenant. Now, if I can have your attention up here, we're going to go back to the text just a second. But those of you that are mindful, and if, if you're not, you can still get a handle on this, that uh, you're mindful of Israel in the wilderness, which is primarily what he has referred to in these verses that we read. Israel in the wilderness, uh, their time there, I said last night or whenever it was, it might have been last week for all I can remember right now, but I'm just saying their time there would be characterized by their murmuring. Yeah, that was last night, how they would have murmured against the Lord. And certainly they did. But that murmuring, watch this, it was a, it was a manifestation of what? Well, their lack of faith. It was a manifestation of their, let's use the Bible term here, believing not. So their time in the wilderness, yes, it's characterized by the murmuring that they did, but that murmuring came about as a result of the fact that they did not believe God. See, and the four verses that we have just read said that very same thing, that God sent them good, and they responded by saying, we don't believe God. Well, then when the next test came, and the next trial came, or the next opposition came, or the next difficulty came, they didn't believe God again. It just kept happening and happening and happening. So God would be good to them, and they said, we don't believe God. Wow. Amazing. But here's where I want to get to tonight. Because I believe it's at the heart of what their unbelief produced. Now, I want to show you three verses. Look in verse 18. And they tempted God. 
See, this follows verse 17, where they sinned by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. Now look at verse 18. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Look in verse 41. Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Verse 56. Yet they tempted and provoked the Most High God and kept not His testimonies. Now, if I can have your attention, and I think I could prove this, like if, if I wanted to take another 30 minutes here and develop the whole psalm, I think I, could, I think I could prove without any problem whatsoever that the glaring sin that God is focusing upon, upon the nation of Israel uh, uh, during this stretch of time that he is referencing, is the fact that their unbelief provoked him, and in so doing, they tempted God. That's the glaring sin. It's at the heart of the problem in their response to the goodness of God. Unbelief and they tempted God. I want to talk about that for a little bit. How do you tempt God? Well, I think uh, to answer that, I'm going to have a twofold answer here. I think to answer that, the first thing we might do is look at the most uh, famous temptation in all the Bible. And that's when Jesus had been baptized. And after he was baptized, he was led in the Spirit in the wilderness to what? Be tempted of the devil. And there in the wilderness, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, the devil comes and he says to him three things. He said, if you're the Son of God... Turn those stones into bread. Secondly, if you, now Luke and Matthew have a different order, but in Matthew he says, if you be the Son of God, then you turn these stones into bread, because he was in hunger. And if you're the Son of God, then why don't you go to the pinnacle of the temple and cast yourself off of the top of the temple, and all the people that are around there will see you because it is written that he shall give his angels charge uh, uh, unto thee, unless, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. So you can throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, go down to the ground unharmed and unhurt, and people would believe in you. And then the third thing he said was, in a high mountain place where you could see for a long, long distance and see the nations and the kingdoms, then the devil said to him, you bow down and worship me and I'll give you these kingdoms like they were his to give. You, you bow down and worship me and I'll give you these kingdoms. That's what he said. And what is this called? Well, it's called a temptation. And somebody says, okay, so what is the point? I mean, in, in tempting him, what does that mean? What does it look like? What is it really, what is really happening here? All right, so if you look at all things that he said to Jesus, turn the stones into bread, what did Jesus do? He answered with the word of God. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, everywhere proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Say amen so I can keep going. All right, and then concerning casting himself off the temple, he said, um, it is written, uh, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And then about the bowing down to worship him, he said, it is written, uh, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. 
All right, so in every case, Jesus answered with the Scripture and with the Word of God, he answered him. Now, the reason he answered that way is because what the adversary was saying was this. I will determine the conditions by which you should be recognized as the Messiah. You turn the stones into bread, you should be called the Son of God. You cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple, you should be believed as the Messiah. You bow down and worship me, I'll withdraw, and you have all the kingdoms that you can see here. And if you do that, so what the devil is saying in every situation is, I will determine the conditions by which you must be trusted as the Messiah. And in every case, Jesus shut him off, and then eventually said to him, Get thee hence, and the devil left him for a season. So what we have to understand about the temptation is that the devil was trying to fill a role that was not his. I will determine the conditions by which you should be believed as the Messiah. And Jesus' basic answer is, oh, no, you won't. You will not determine the conditions by which I will be known as the Messiah. That is the responsibility of my Father. And I came to do my Father's will. I came to say my Father's words. I came to do my Father's works. And my Father will determine the conditions by which I am known as the Messiah, not you. He put him in his place. Oh, man, that's some good stuff, that whole temptation. And the way Jesus dealt with your adversary, that's what's so heartening about it. The Scripture says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. He's already dealt with the adversary. I wouldn't listen to a lot of the Pentecostal charismatic and these happy dudes out here that say, I just tell the devil you do this, and you need to tell the devil you do this, and you need to tell the devil. Uh, no, 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 I don't see that in the Bible. I saw when Michael the archangel dealt with the devil about the body of Moses. Michael the archangel, Michael, one like God, archangel, angel of the highest order, uh, Michael the archangel said to your adversary in mind, The Lord rebuke thee, Satan. We're talking about a powerful enemy. I said we're talking about a powerful enemy. It's so heartening to see how Jesus dealt with him. So here's tempting him. I determine the conditions. You meet them. You should be known as Messiah. Here's another thing. In the course of Israel's history, we have another, what I would call, classic example of what it is to tempt God. And many of you will recognize it. And it was a time of difficulty while they were still in the wilderness. And uh, if you want to know what they were going through, now watch this. If you backed up into Numbers chapter 20, now you don't need to turn there now. I'm just going to hit some high spots here. But if you backed up into Numbers chapter 20, you would see that they were in their wilderness journey in about year 38, maybe the beginning of year 39, so it's about over. And as they are in this wilderness journey, they hit a hard stretch because they're without water again. And that's when Moses said, Must God give you water out of a rock, you rebels? And he hit the rock twice instead of speaking to the rock. Remember that? He got himself in trouble with the Lord. But nonetheless, water came out. And so they had this uh, situation where there was no water. They had a second situation that came up 
because God wanted them to get positioned so they might be ready to go into the promised land. And so they said to the Edomites, their cousins, the descendants of Esau, Israel, descendants of Jacob, the twin brother. And so uh, they were to position themselves, and they said to the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, let us pass through your land so we can get around there and get positioned. And the Edomites said, no way. You try to come through our land, you've got a war on your hands. And the Israelites were dumbfounded. They said, well, we were cousins, you know. Why would you let us pass through the land here? We'll go on the king's highway. You can read it there in Numbers chapter 20. We'll go on the king's highway. If we do any damage, we'll pay for it. We're not going to for our cattle to eat your grass or to drink your water. We're just passing through. That's all. And they said, nope, you do it, and we got a war. So they have the hostility of somebody that they thought might be friendly to them. And, and that's right after the water situation. And the third thing that happens in chapter 20 is Aaron dies. Miriam did too, but not much is made of the death of Miriam. But when Aaron died, that was a big deal. And the land, were, the nation was in grief and they were in sorrow. Come on, you know the account. Aaron had played a very significant role in their departure from Egypt and in that wilderness journey. And when Moses didn't want the job and said, I don't even know how to speak, God said, I'll use Aaron as your mouthpiece. And Aaron was the progenitor then of that Aaronic priesthood, see? And so Aaron was a very significant individual. And as if it's not bad enough, they already ran out of water once. And then if it's not bad enough, they're faced with a conflict with the Edomites that wouldn't let them pass through. Now look what we got. Aaron dies, and they stop in their tracks for 30 days and grieve the death of Aaron. And they grieved and wept and cried and grieved and wept and cried. That's all in chapter 20. Move into chapter 21 of Numbers. You know the first thing to do? Arad the Canaanite comes out and leads an army against them and declares war on Israel. Now, Israel won the war. God gave them the victory. But still, they didn't want war. Who does want war? There's nothing glamorous and beautiful about war. I'm just saying that they had to go to war then and fight Arad, the Canaanite. So if you just kind of look at what they've been through, okay, step by step by step, bang, 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 here's what happened. They came to the place where they ran out of water. Well, they got water, but it was not convenient. And then they came to the place where the Edomites would not let them pass through. Came to the place where there was grief and death and sorrow. Came to the place where they had to go to the very next step and fight a war against Arad, the Canaanites. And if you read in chapter 21 after the war with the Canaanites, in verse number 5 it says, And the people was much discouraged because of the way. Much discouraged because of the way? Yeah, the way we just talked about. The way of inconvenience, the way of uh, the unfriendliness of the Edomites, the way of grief and sorrow and death, the way of war. No, they had been through this bang, 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 four deals in a row, and they're just up to here with all of this. And so the Bible says, watch, they are much discouraged because of the way. And if you and I went to Numbers 21, you'd see in chapter 5 that they spake against God. How discouraged were they? They were dispirited. They were disheartened. They were so far down they didn't even want to follow God or follow Moses. And they spake against God. And they spake against Moses saying, let's go back to the land of Egypt. It would be better for us to die in the wilderness or in Egypt than to go through this. And that was their response to God. Who just gave them water miraculously for the third time. I said, 
who just took care of the Edomite problem and gave them a route to go, who just defeated Arad the Canaanite. Well, somebody said, but Aaron died. I know Aaron died. You know, almost everybody dies sooner or later. That went over great, didn't it? I said, almost everybody dies sooner or later. The point is that they are upset with God. And they are, listen, they are speaking against God, and they are speaking against Moses. And the people were much, they was much discouraged, much dispirited, much disheartened, much vexed down. They did not want to rise and follow God. Question. How did God respond? How did God respond to them? I'm not sure you're ready for this just looking at you, but I can't see anything except your eyes, and I don't really know what's going on with you. How did God respond? I'll tell you how he responded. He sent serpents among them. Read Numbers 21. He sent serpents among them to bite them, and much people died. They didn't think they were sinning. Well, we're justified. I mean, just think what we've been through. No water. Edomites won't let us pass through. Uh, uh, Aaron dies. Arad the Kenyanite comes out. What do you expect us to do? Be rejoicing in all this? No, God just took care of every situation. God was sufficient for every situation they faced. And they said, no, we're speaking against God and we're speaking against Moses and we'd rather go back to Egypt or we'd rather die in this wilderness and go through this. And God, listen to this, he sent the serpents among them. I'm going to submit this to you. It's one of the more stark manifestations of his displeasure with his people that you'll find in the Bible. I didn't say it's the most. But it is one of the most uh, harsh responses that God gave to his people. And the people began to die, defending themselves, justifying themselves. Watch. Until the serpents came, and until the serpents bit them, and until people start dying, at which time they cried out, We have sinned! And came to Moses and asked him to pray for them. Which he did. He did. That's when he took the pole of brass and the serpent of brass at the command of God. All right, now, here's the thing. What I want to get across is this, is that God said the reason that he sent the serpents among them was because they tempted him. Now, it doesn't use the word tempt in Numbers 21. I, I read that from a commentator. And uh, the commentator said that the reason those serpents came was because they tempted the Lord. Well, we don't care what a commentator says. We want the Bible. Is it okay if Paul's the commentator? Okay, that's what I thought. So go to 1 Corinthians 10. Look at it right here. Because he is the commentator. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, hold your place in, chap in Psalm 78. But look down in verse number uh, chapter number 10 and verse number 6. All of these things he said about their problems in the wilderness are for our example. 
And then he says in verse 7, don't you be idolaters like they were. Verse 8, don't commit fornication like they did. Verse number 9, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. I'm asking you a question. What did Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say their sin was in the wilderness there when they were much discouraged and wanted to get rid of Moses and blame God and go back to Egypt or die in the wilderness? What did God say their sin was? They tempted God. And Paul's writing to Corinthians and he's saying, let's don't tempt Christ like they tempted God. It's exactly what he's saying. So that's how I know they were tempting God. Well, I don't quite understand what that has to do with anything. Well, I'm not done. Go back to verse 41. Look at verse 41. We're going to enlarge upon this thought because verse 41 does just that. Look in verse 41. Yea, they turned back and tempted God, and this line... I mean, I've, I've paid attention to this line for a long, long time before I ever really dug into it. And he said, yea, they turned back and tempted God, watch this, and limited the Holy One of Israel. Excuse me a second. Remember us teaching, and it's right here in our passage, the high and lofty nature of God? I was reading in that 33rd Psalm, Pastor, that you uh, quoted from tonight. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I was just looking at that, and when it talks about God's glory is high above the heavens and the psalm we preach from on Sunday morning, well, the psalmist says in Psalm 33, he, he just says that the Lord opened his mouth and the heavens came into existence. That's not word for word, but that's what is said. And we're talking about the mighty one, excuse me, we're talking about the God who is omnipotent, he has all power. He is the God who is everywhere present. He is the God that knows absolutely everything. He is God, and we can talk about the attributes, or we can talk about, as the pastor has has suggested here several times in this meeting, about the names of God and what they represent that he is to his people. We can talk about all of that, and yet it says right here in our text that what these people did was limit the Holy one of Israel. How could you limit such a God? It's in the context of tempting him. So I checked this word limit out. Limited. Can I have your attention? And at first I thought, huh? What? Well, here's what limited means. It means to, let's say that we're, let's say that we're uh, on a playground of dirt. It means to make a score in the dirt. Take your finger, write in it, or make a circle, make a score in the earth. Thank you very much, Brother Sam. That's very helpful. Well, I'm not done yet either, so stay with me here just a second. It means they mark a score or they draw a line. Now, when I studied this out, it sort of reminded me of the days of marbles. Did anybody in here besides me grow up playing marbles? You know, where you take marbles and, Brother Rich, it's like me and you, brother. You got any with you? Maybe we could play after church. So we play marbles. I had older brothers back in those days. I mean, marbles were the thing. And I remember going to school and we'd play marbles. And we played for keeps. I remember going home with a big old bag of marbles. 
<laughs> I walked in the door and my mother said, uh, where'd you get all the marbles? I said, from playing marbles at school. Well, I know, but those aren't your, you, didn't, you don't have that many marbles. And I said, we play for keeps, Mom. I won these marbles today. And she said, that's gambling. We're not going to do that and take all the marbles back. It put a big dent in my marble career right there, you know. And so, anyway, that's the way she looked at it. But the way we do it is, if you had, let's say, six guys that wanted to play, you'd, draw this, you'd, you'd just draw this circle in the dirt. And then you put a whole bunch of marbles in the middle, and then each guy has a marble that is called the tall. It's the one you shoot with. And it might be a little bigger. I got in a fight once because a guy wanted to use a steel one, which would just spread the marbles everywhere. And he said, there's no rule that says I can't. I said, I can't. I think I got whooped. But anyway, I put up a fight to keep him from having that steel tall. So you take him and you line up on the outside of that line. All the marbles are there. And you shoot in there. And everybody takes their turn. And when all the marbles are out, you count the marbles. And whoever has the most marbles wins. And you got to get them. You got to shoot from outside that line, and then the marbles got to go outside that line while your marble stays inside the line. Yes, silly rules, I know, but that's why it's played. It wasn't the only game of marbles, but that scoring it in the ground made me think. You know what Israel was doing? They said, God, we're going to limit you. You work within our circle, we'll follow you. Well, what exactly would that look like? Well, instead of having to wait on another miracle of water coming out of a rock and going through all the scene of our leader being as upset as he was and calling us a bunch of rebels and smiting the rock twice when you just told him to speak to it, just give us water when we want it, how we want it. And another thing, why are the Edomites still alive? We are your covenant people. If you just destroy the Edomites like fire from heaven, like you destroyed the uh, army of the Egyptians, some, something like that. If, you would, if you'd work within our circle and not make us have to contend with the Edomites and go to the inconvenience of the, of the uh, tension between the nations and have to go all around Edom... And furthermore, God, if Aaron died, if you just let us tell you when it'd be a good time for people like that to die, and then we had a fight with Arad the Canaanite. Why do the Canaanites even exist? Why don't you destroy them like you destroyed Egypt? Send the plagues before you ever got here. Get rid of these people so we don't have to mess with them. What they are really saying is, God... You're not working within our boundaries. And therefore, we are against you, and we are against Moses, and we'd rather go back to Egypt than follow you. And you know what Paul said they did? And you know what God said they did? And you know what this passage said they did? They tempted the Holy One of Israel, and they limited him and said, If you'll work within my will and my wishes then I will believe you as God. That is satanic. I said, that's satanic. That's diabolic. That is called. What do you think when you read this verse? They limited the Holy One of Israel. Good thoughts come into your mind or, oh, no. 
Whatever that means, it can't be good. And they tempted God, and they limited the Holy One of Israel. Now, again, I'm going to say, that was a shameful thing. It's sad that that ever happened. But we're not here primarily to talk about them. We are here primarily so the Word of God can talk about us and confront us about where we are. And I just wonder if there might be somebody, I'm not accusing, because I wouldn't have any way of knowing, but I wonder if there might be somebody in this room, and you're willing to believe God, you're willing to follow God, you're willing to sing the song uh, uh, that we were singing a while ago, I've decided to follow Jesus, I've decided to follow Jesus, I've decided to follow Jesus, and then some inconvenience comes into your life that you weren't expecting, or then somebody dies that you didn't think should die, or then some happenstance comes where there's some opposition, adversity in your life, or then you're in some kind of a spiritual battle, and wait a minute, God, wait a minute, I don't want all of this, and you're willing to follow Jesus till he won't do what you want him to and turn It happens. It happens. Oh, hi, Brother Sam. Come on in. You know, well, just wondering. Yeah, well, l- listen, I came by uh, because, you know, I've noticed that you haven't been at uh, church here in the last two or three weeks. Man, that's not like you. What in the world's going on? Well, I mean, because I said, you know, I, you, you were plugged in and you were serving in this ministry or that ministry. Could have been in the parking lot. Could have been a Sunday school class. Could have been a bus route junior church. Any number of things. Nursing home ministry and on and on it goes. And you were a part of the of the uh, fishers of men, the soul winning thing. You were a part of all of this stuff. And, and now, I, what, what's going on? Well... And it turns out somebody hurt their feelings. Some teacher corrected their kid. And my kid, no, your child never does wrong, sure. And I feel like they don't like our family. Okay, so that may have happened. It may be just like you said. Can I ask you a question? Sure. What does that have to do with you following Jesus? Did Jesus fail you? Well, no, no. Well, then what does that have to do with you not following Jesus? Sitting here and licking your sores or pouting when you ought to be in church and be in the house of God when there are people that were dependent on you to fulfill this ministry that you said that you wanted to be a part of. What is somebody failing you and hurting your feelings or hurting the feelings of your precious child? What does this have to do with who do you follow Jesus or not? Has he failed you? Well, no. What's your problem? Well, it just didn't go like I thought. You know, here's what it all amounts to. Uh, he could have, I mean, this shouldn't have happened. I mean, this, and if he would, because it all goes back to the Lord. I said, if you're going to stop following Jesus over this kind of stuff, then it all goes back to him. And what you're saying, he should have never allowed this to happen to my child. Not my child. No. Are you sure your child told you the truth? My child never lies. <laughs> you know, it's just about like um, um, my wife and I have been married 54 years, and two years ago, my brother, it's eight years older than me, he and his wife celebrated 54 years. 
And shortly thereafter, she left. Uh, my wife's name is Sandra. Everybody calls her Sandy, but me. And his wife's name is Sandy. And she left him. Shook our family up, shook him up big time. Now they're back together. They're back together. But man, that was a shocker. What if I'd have gone home to my wife and said, Sandra, I can't say married to you. I don't know what does it. What if I went home and said, Sandra, I can't stay married to you anymore? She might say, Oh, hallelujah. But I, I'm hoping that's not what she, her response would be. And let's just suppose, I may be taking a lot for granted here, but let's just suppose that she said, what? I said, I, I just, I can't be married to you anymore. Well, what are you talking about? Uh, I'm just devastated. About what? His wife leaving him. Well, how does that have anything to do with it? Her name's Sandy. And since that happened to them, I'm not going to stay married to you. Somebody said, that is the most cockeyed, silly, dumb thing that I've ever heard in my life. Do you know there are people that treat Jesus like that? Fairly regularly. Fairly regularly. Because they've got this circle drawn. They would never say they do, but they do. And if their family gets to sing, when they think their family gets to sing, we're all in. But if they haven't sung, and this other family sung twice, since our family sung, poochy lip. Discontent. How could this be? Why is this so? The spirit, the heart, the attitude of a servant is gone. And things didn't, we didn't work within their circle. So they're ready to check out and dis make others discontent as well. Are you listening to this, friend? And I went to see a man and I said, Larry. I haven't seen you in three or four Sundays. He said, uh, I know, and you won't be seeing me there anymore. Larry, what? What? I mean, I remember when I reached this guy. I remember baptizing him. I said, Larry, what is going on? Has he been in our church for several years? I said, Larry, what's going on? He said, Brother Sam, don't act innocent. You know, you know that three Sundays in a row you preached right to me. And you know it. I said, Larry, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. And he said, well, you did. And I said, well, Larry, there's about 1,500 people in that auditorium. You may be overestimating your importance just a little bit, like I would have it just for you. And he's ready. And he did check out. He checked out. Why? Because he had a circle of expectation. And when it wasn't met, he didn't say, I need a new pastor. He didn't say, I want to talk to you about what seems apparent to me. He didn't say any of that. When things weren't done within his circle of expectation, 
He limited the Holy One of Israel and checked out. Everybody listen to this? Now, how many scenarios must I develop here? How many illustrations must I give? And I'm just saying, if there's somebody in this room right now, whether it has to do with your marriage relationship or the raising of your children, or whether it has to do with tithing or giving, I'm, I'm just saying to you, if you make any kind of a circle right here, and you say that God must work within that circle for you to have joy and for you to love Him and for you to follow Him, when you already have sung the song, no turning back, no turning back, well, please at least be honest and qualified unless He won't do what I want Him to. And if He doesn't, I will turn back. And if you find yourself outside of the fellowship of the Lord because you checked out because He pulled some surprises on you and there were some disappointments that came in your life and there were some struggles that you can't figure out why that would happen in your life and there's some huge disappointments that came and I'm not minimizing the reality of and the hurt of some disappointments and things that happen that don't go... I'm not minimizing the significance of that but it doesn't have anything to do with whether I should be devoted to Jesus or not. And that's the very thing Paul said. Don't you do what they did. They tempt, let's not tempt Jesus like they tempt God and limited the Holy One of Israel because he didn't work in their circle of expectation. That's what he's saying. And a bottom line statement that probably ought to be said often is this. We do not follow Jesus because he meets all of our expectations. We follow Jesus because Jesus is Lord, period. That's who he is. Well, I just don't understand this. He's still Lord. You have the same responsibility. Understand or don't understand. You and I have the same responsibility. And maybe we ought to think about this. Do I mean it when I say, I've decided to follow Jesus, I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. If we mean it, sing it out. If you don't mean it, then you need to not quit singing it, but get your heart in the position where you can sing it. That's what ought to happen. It's serious, serious business. Limited, the Holy One of Israel.